Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Chapter 22 of Lady Audley's Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter 22. Coming to a Standstill. Mr. Harcourt Tallboys lived in a prim, square, red-brick mansion, within a mile of a little village called Grange Heath, in Dorsetshire. The prim, square, red-brick mansion stood in the centre of prim, square grounds, scarcely large enough to be called a park, too large to be called anything else, so neither the house nor the grounds had any name, and the estate was simply designated Squire Tallboys. Perhaps Mr. Harcourt Tallboys was the last person in this world with whom it was possible to associate the homely, hardy, rural, old English title of squire. He neither hunted nor farmed. He had never worn crimson, pink, or top-boots in his life. A southerly wind and a cloudy sky were matters of supreme indifference to him, so long as they did not in any way interfere with his own prim comforts and he only cared for the state of the crops inasmuch as it involved the hazard of certain rents which he received for the farms upon his estate. He was a man of about fifty years of age, tall, straight, bony, and angular, with a square, pale face, light grey eyes, and scanty dark hair, brushed from either ear across a bald crown, and thus imparting to his physiognomy some faint resemblance to that of a terrier, a sharp, uncompromising, hard-headed terrier, a terrier not to be taken in by the cleverest dog-stealer who ever distinguished himself in his profession. Nobody ever remembered getting upon what is popularly called the blind side of Harcourt Tallboys. He was like his own square-built, northern-fronted, shelterless house. There were no shady nooks in his character into which one could creep for shelter from his hard daylight. He was all daylight. He looked at everything in the same broad glare of intellectual sunlight— and would see no softening shadows that might alter the sharp outlines of cruel facts, subduing them to beauty. I do not know if I express what I mean when I say that there were no curves in his character, that his mind ran in straight lines, never diverging to the right or the left, to round off their pitiless angles. With him, right was right, and wrong was wrong. He had never in his merciless, conscientious life admitted the idea that circumstances might mitigate the blackness of wrong, or weaken the force of right. He had cast off his only son, because his only son had disobeyed him, and he was ready to cast off his only daughter at five minutes' notice for the same reason. 
If this square-built, hard-headed man could be possessed of such a weakness as vanity, he was certainly vain of his hardness. He was vain of that inflexible squareness of intellect, which made him the disagreeable creature that he was. He was vain of that unwavering obstinacy which no influence of love or pity had ever been known to bend from its remorseless purpose. He was vain of the negative force of a nature which had never known the weakness of the affections, or the strength which may be born of that very weakness. If he had regretted his son's marriage, and the breach of his own making between himself and George, his vanity had been more powerful than his regret, and had enabled him to conceal it. Indeed, unlikely as it appears at the first glance that such a man as this could have been vain, I have little doubt that vanity was the centre from which radiated all the disagreeable lines in the character of Mr. Harcourt Tallboys. I dare say Junius Brutus was vain, and enjoyed the approval of awe-stricken Rome when he ordered his son off for execution. Harcourt Tallboys would have sent poor George from his presence between the reversed faces of the lictors, and grimly relished his own agony. Heaven only knows how bitterly this hard man may have felt the separation between himself and his only son, or how much the more terrible the anguish might have been made by that unflinching self-conceit which concealed the torture. "'My son did me an unpardonable wrong by marrying the daughter of a drunken pauper,' Mr. Talboys would answer to any one who had the temerity to speak to him about George. "'And from that hour I had no longer a son. I wish him no ill. He is simply dead to me. I am sorry for him, as I am sorry for his mother who died nineteen years ago. If you talk to me of him as you would talk of the dead, I shall be ready to hear you. If you speak of him as you would speak of the living, I must decline to listen.' I believe that Harcourt Talboys hugged himself upon the gloomy Roman grandeur of this speech, and that he would like to have worn a toga, and wrapped himself sternly in its folds, as he turned his back upon poor George's intercessor. George never in his own person made any effort to soften his father's verdict. He knew his father well enough to know that the case was hopeless. "'If I write to him, he will fold my letter with the envelope inside, and endorse it with my name and the date of its arrival.' the young man would say, and call everybody in the house to witness that it had not moved him to one softening recollection or one pitiful thought. He will stick to his resolution to his dying day. I dare say, if the truth was known, he is glad that his only son has offended him and given him the opportunity of parading his Roman virtues. George had answered his wife thus when she and her father had urged him to seek assistance from Harcourt Tallboys. "'No, my darling,' he would say, conclusively. It's very hard, perhaps, to be poor, but we will bear it. We won't go with pitiful faces to the stern father, and ask him to give us food and shelter, only to be refused in long Johnsonian sentences, and made a classical example for the benefit of the neighborhood. No, my pretty one, it is easy to starve, but it is difficult to stoop. Perhaps poor Mrs. George did not agree very heartily to the first of these two propositions. She had no great fancy for starving— and she whimpered pitifully when the pretty pint bottles of champagne, with Clicquot's and Moet's brands upon their corks, were exchanged for sixpenny ale, procured by a slipshod attendant from the nearest beer-shop. George had been obliged to carry his own burden and lend a helping hand with that of his wife, who had no idea of keeping her regrets or disappointments a secret. "'I thought dragoons were always rich,' she used to say peevishly. 
Girls always want to marry dragoons, and tradespeople always want to serve dragoons, and hotel-keepers to entertain dragoons, and theatrical managers to be patronized by dragoons. Who could have ever expected that a dragoon would drink sixpenny ale, smoke horrid bird's-eye tobacco, and let his wife wear a shabby bonnet? If there were any selfish feelings displayed in such speeches as these, George Talboys had never discovered it. He had loved and believed in his wife from the first to the last hour of his brief married life. The love that is not blind is perhaps only a spurious divinity, after all. For when Cupid takes the fillet from his eyes, it is a fatally certain indication that he is preparing to spread his wings for a flight. George never forgot the hour in which he had first become bewitched by Lieutenant Malden's pretty daughter, and however she might have changed, the image which had charmed him then, unchanged and unchanging, represented her in his heart. Robert Audley left Southampton by a train which started before daybreak, and reached Wareham Station early in the day. He hired a vehicle at Wareham to take him over to Grange Heath. The snow had hardened upon the ground, and the day was clear and frosty, every object in the landscape standing in sharp outline against the cold blue sky. The horses' hoofs clattered upon the ice-bound road, the iron shoes striking on the ground that was almost as iron as themselves. The wintry day bore some resemblance to the man to whom Robert was going. Like him, it was sharp, frigid, and uncompromising. Like him, it was merciless to distress, and impregnable to the softening power of sunshine. It would accept no sunshine but such January radiance as would light upon the bleak, bare country without brightening it, and thus resembled Harcourt Tallboys, who took the sternest side of every truth, and declared loudly to the disbelieving world that there had never been, and never could be, any other side. Robert Audley's heart sunk within him as the shabby hired vehicle stopped at a stern-looking barred fence, and the driver dismounted to open a broad iron gate which swung back with a clanking noise, and was caught by a great iron tooth, planted in the ground, which snapped at the lowest bar of the gate, as if it wanted to bite. This iron gate opened into a scanty plantation of straight-limbed fir-trees, that grew in rows and shook their sturdy winter foliage defiantly in the very teeth of the frosty breeze. A straight gravelled carriage-drive ran between these straight trees across a smoothly kept lawn to a square, red-brick mansion, every window of which winked and glittered in the January sunlight, as if it had been that moment cleaned by some indefatigable housemaid. I don't know whether Junius Brutus was a nuisance in his own house, but among other of his Roman virtues, Mr. Talboys owned an extreme aversion to disorder, and was the terror of every domestic in his establishment. The windows winked, and the flight of stone steps glared in the sunlight. The prim garden walks were so freshly graveled that they gave a sandy, gingery aspect to the place, reminding one unpleasantly of red hair. The lawn was chiefly ornamented with dark, wintry shrubs of a funereal aspect, which grew in beds that looked like problems in algebra, and the flight of stone steps leading to the square half-glass door of the hall was adorned with dark green wooden tubs containing the same sturdy evergreens. If the man is anything like his house, Robert thought, I don't wonder that poor George and he parted. At the end of a scanty avenue the carriage drive turned a sharp corner—it would have been made to describe a curve in any other man's grounds—and ran before the lower windows of the house. The fly-man dismounted at the steps, ascended them, and rang a brass-handled bell, which flew back to its socket with an angry metallic snap, as if it had been insulted by the plebeian touch of the man's hand. A man in black trousers and a striped linen jacket, which was evidently fresh from the hands of the laundress, opened the door. Mr. Tallboys was at home, 
Would the gentleman send in his card? Robert waited in the hall while his card was taken to the master of the house. The hall was large and lofty, paved with stone. The panels of the oaken wainscot shone with the same uncompromising polish which was on every object within and without the red-bricked mansion. Some people are so weak-minded as to affect pictures and statues. Mr. Harcourt Tallboys was far too practical to indulge in any foolish fancies. A barometer and an umbrella stand were the only adornments of his entrance hall. Robert Audley looked at these while his name was being submitted to George's father. The linen-jacketed servant returned presently. He was a square, pale-faced man of almost forty, and had the appearance of having outlived every emotion to which humanity is subject. "'If you will step this way, sir,' he said, "'Mr. Tallboys will see you, although he is at breakfast. He begged me to state that everybody in Dorsetshire was acquainted with his breakfast hour.' This was intended as a stately reproof to Mr. Robert Audley. It had, however, very small effect upon the young barrister. He merely lifted his eyebrows in placid deprecation of himself and everybody else. "'I don't belong to Dorsetshire,' he said. "'Mr. Tallboys might have known that, if he'd done me the honour to exercise his powers of ratiocination. Drive on, my friend.' The emotionless man looked at Robert Audley with a vacant stare of unmitigated horror, and opening one of the heavy oak doors, led the way into a large dining-room furnished with the severe simplicity of an apartment which is meant to be aided, but never lived in. And at the top of a table which would have accommodated eighteen persons, Robert beheld Mr. Harcourt Tallboys. Mr. Tallboys was robed in a dressing-gown of grey cloth, fastened about his waist with a girdle. It was a severe-looking garment, and was perhaps the nearest approach to the toga to be obtained within the range of modern costume. He wore a buff waistcoat, a stiffly starched cambric cravat, and a faultless shirt-collar. The cold grey of his dressing-gown was almost the same as the cold grey of his eyes, and the pale buff of his waistcoat was the pale buff of his complexion. Robert Audley had not expected to find Harcourt Tallboys at all like George in his manners or disposition, but he had expected to see some family likeness between the father and the son. There was none. It would have been impossible to imagine any one more unlike George than the author of his existence. Robert scarcely wondered at the cruel letter he received from Mr. Tallboys when he saw the writer of it. Such a man could scarcely have written otherwise. There was a second person in the large room, toward whom Robert glanced after saluting Harcourt Tallboys, doubtful how to proceed. This second person was a lady, who sat at the last of a range of four windows, employed with some needlework, the kind which is generally called plain work, and with a large wicker basket filled with calicoes and flannels standing by her. The whole length of the room divided this lady from Robert, but he could see that she was young, and that she was like George Tallboys. "'His sister,' he thought in that one moment, during which he ventured to glance away from the master of the house toward the female figure at the window. "'His sister, no doubt. He was fond of her, I know. Surely she is not utterly indifferent as to his fate.' The lady half rose from her seat, letting her work, which was large and awkward, fall from her lap as she did so, and dropping a reel of cotton, which rolled away upon the polished oaken flooring beyond the margin of the turkey carpet. "'Sit down, Clara,' said the hard voice of Mr. Tallboys. That gentleman did not appear to address his daughter, nor had his face been turned toward her when she rose. It seemed as if he had known it by some social magnetism peculiar to himself. It seemed, as his servants were apt disrespectfully to observe, as if he had eyes in the back of his head. 
"'Sit down, Clara,' he repeated, "'and keep your cotton in your work-box.' The lady blushed at this reproof, and stooped to look for the cotton. Mr. Robert Audley, who was unabashed by the stern presence of the master of the house, knelt on the carpet, found the reel, and restored it to his owner, Harcourt Tallboy staring at the proceeding with an expression of unmitigated astonishment. "'Perhaps, Mr.—Mr. Mr. Robert Audley,' he said, looking at the card which he had held between his finger and thumb, "'perhaps when you have finished looking for reels of cotton, you will be good enough to tell me to what I owe the honour of this visit.' He waved his well-shaped hand with a gesture which might have been admired in the stately John Kemble, and the servant, understanding the gesture, brought forward a ponderous red morocco chair. The proceeding was so slow and solemn, that Robert had at first thought that something extraordinary was about to be done, but the truth dawned upon him at last, and he dropped into the massive chair. "'You may remain, Wilson,' said Mr. Tallboys, as the servant was about to withdraw. Mr. Audley would perhaps like coffee." Robert had eaten nothing that morning, but he glanced at the long expanse of dreary tablecloth, the silver tea and coffee equipage, the stiff splendour, and the very little appearance of any substantial entertainment, and he declined Mr. Tallboy's invitation. "'Mr. Audley will not take coffee, Wilson,' said the master of the house. "'You may go.' The man bowed and retired, opening and shutting the door as cautiously as if he were taking a liberty in doing it at all, or as if the respect due to Mr. Tallboys demanded his walking straight through the oaken panel like a ghost in a German story. Mr. Harcourt Tallboys sat with his grey eyes fixed severely on his visitor, his elbows on the red morocco arms of his chair, and his fingertips joined. It was the attitude in which, had he been Junius Brutus, he would have sat at the trial of his son. Had Robert Audley been easily to be embarrassed, Mr. Tallboys might have succeeded in making him feel so, as he would have sat with perfect tranquillity upon an open gunpowder barrel lighting his cigar, he was not at all disturbed upon this occasion. The father's dignity seemed a very small thing to him when he thought of the possible causes of his son's disappearance. "'I wrote to you some time since, Mr. Tallboys,' he said quietly, when he saw that he was expected to open the conversation. Harcourt Tallboys bowed. He knew that it was of his lost son that Robert came to speak. Heaven grant that his icy stoicism was the paltry affectation of a vain man, rather than the utter heartlessness which Robert thought it. He bowed across his fingertips at his visitor. The trial had begun, and Junius Brutus was enjoying himself. "'I received your communication, Mr. Audley,' he said. "'It is among other business letters. It was duly answered.' That letter concerned your son. There was a little rustling noise at the window where the lady sat. As Robert said this, he looked at her almost instantaneously, but she did not seem to have stirred. She was not working, but she was perfectly quiet. "'She's as heartless as her father, I expect, though she is like George,' thought Mr. Audley. "'If your letter concerned the person who was once my son, perhaps, sir,' said Harcourt Tallboys, I must ask you to remember that I no longer have a son." "'You have no reason to remind me of that, Mr. Tallboys,' answered Robert gravely. "'I remember it only too well. I have fatal reason to believe that you no longer have a son. I have bitter cause to think that he is dead.' It may be that Mr. Tallboys' complexion faded to a paler shade of buff as Robert said this, but he only elevated his bristling grey eyebrows and shook his head gently. 
"'No,' he said. "'No, I assure you, no.' "'I believe that George Tallboys died in the month of September.' The girl, who had been addressed as Clara, sat with work primly folded upon her lap, and her hands lying clasped together on her work, and never stirred when Robert spoke of his friend's death. He could not distinctly see her face, for she was seated at some distance from him, and with her back to the window. "'No, no, I assure you,' repeated Mr. Tallboys. "'You labour under a sad mistake.' "'You believe that I am mistaken in thinking your son dead?' asked Robert. "'Most certainly.' replied Mr. Tallboys, with a smile expressive of the serenity of wisdom. "'Most certainly, my dear sir. The disappearance was a very clever trick, no doubt, but it was not sufficiently clever to deceive me. You must permit me to understand this matter a little better than you, Mr. Audley, and you must also permit me to assure you of three things. In the first place, your friend is not dead. In the second place, he is keeping out of the way for the purpose of alarming me, of trifling with my feelings as a—as a as a man who was once his father, and of ultimately obtaining my forgiveness. In the third place, he will not obtain that forgiveness, however long he may please to keep out of the way, and he would therefore act wisely by returning to his ordinary residence and avocations without delay." "'Then you imagine him to purposely hide himself from all who know him, for the purpose of—' "'For the purpose of influencing me!' exclaimed Mr. Tallboys, who, taking a stand upon his own vanity, traced every event in life from that one centre, and resolutely declined to look at it from any other point of view. "'For the purpose of influencing me. He knew the inflexibility of my character.' To a certain degree he was acquainted with me, and knew that all attempts at softening my decision, or moving me from the fixed purpose of my life, would fail. He therefore tried extraordinary means. He has kept out of the way in order to alarm me, and when after due time he discovers that he has not alarmed me, he will return to his old haunts. When he does so," said Mr. Tallboys, rising to sublimity, "'I will forgive him.' "'Yes, sir, I will forgive him. I shall say to him, "'You have attempted to deceive me, and I have shown you that I am not to be deceived. "'You have tried to frighten me, and I have convinced you that I am not to be frightened. "'You did not believe in my generosity. I will show you that I can be generous.'" Harcourt Tallboys delivered himself of these superb periods with a studied manner, that showed that they had been carefully composed long ago. Robert Audley sighed as he heard them. "'Heaven grant that you may have an opportunity of saying this to your son, sir,' he answered sadly. "'I am very glad to find that you are willing to forgive him, but I fear that you will never see him again upon this earth. I have a great deal to say to you upon this—this this sad subject, Mr. Tallboys.' "'But I would rather say it to you alone,' he added, glancing at the lady in the window. "'My daughter knows my ideas upon this subject, Mr. Audley,' said Harcourt Tallboys. "'There is no reason why she should not hear all you have to say. "'Miss Clara Tallboys, Mr. Robert Audley,' he added, waving his hand majestically. The young lady bent her head in recognition of Robert's bow. "'Let her hear it,' he thought. If she has so little feeling as to show no emotion upon such a subject, let her hear the worst I have to tell." There was a few minutes' pause, during which Robert took some papers from his pocket, 
among them the document which he had written immediately after George's disappearance. "'I shall require all your attention, Mr. Tallboys,' he said, "'for that which I have to disclose to you is of a very painful nature. Your son was my very dear friend, dear to me for many reasons, perhaps most of all dear because I had known him and been with him through the great trouble of his life, and because he stood comparatively alone in the world, cast off by you who should have been his best friend, bereft of the only woman he had ever loved. "'The daughter of a drunken pauper,' Mr. Tallboys remarked parenthetically. "'Had he died in his bed, as I sometimes thought he would,' continued Robert Audley, "'of a broken heart, I should have mourned for him very sincerely, even though I had closed his eyes with my own hands, and had seen him laid in his quiet resting-place. I should have grieved for my old schoolfellow, and for the companion who had been dear to me. But this grief would have been a very small one compared to that which I feel now, believing, as I do only too firmly, that my poor friend has been murdered." "'Murdered!' The father and daughter simultaneously repeated the horrible word. The father's face changed to a ghastly duskiness of hue. The daughter's face dropped upon her clasped hands, and was never lifted again throughout the interview. "'Mr. Audley, you are mad!' exclaimed Harcourt Tallboys. "'You are mad, or else you are commissioned by your friend to play upon my feelings. I protest against this proceeding as a conspiracy, and I—I I revoke my intended forgiveness of the person who was once my son.' He was himself again as he said this. The blow had been a sharp one, but its effect had been momentary. "'It is far from my wish to alarm you unnecessarily, sir,' answered Robert. "'Heaven grant that you may be right and I wrong. I pray for it.' but I cannot think it. I cannot even hope it. I come to you for advice. I will state to you plainly and dispassionately the circumstances which have aroused my suspicions. If you say those suspicions are foolish and unfounded, I am ready to submit to your better judgment. I will leave England, and I abandon my search for the evidence wanting to—to confirm my fears. If you say go on, I will go on." Nothing could be more gratifying to the vanity of Mr. Harcourt Tallboys than this appeal. He declared himself ready to listen to all that Robert might have to say, and ready to assist him to the uttermost of his power. He laid some stress upon this last assurance, deprecating the value of his advice with an affectation that was as transparent as his vanity itself. Robert Audley drew his chair nearer to that of Mr. Tallboys, and commenced a minutely detailed account of all that had occurred to George from the time of his arrival in England to the hour of his disappearance, as well as all that had occurred since his disappearance in any way touching upon that particular subject. Harcourt Tallboys listened with demonstrative attention, now and then interrupting the speaker to ask some magisterial kind of question. Clara Tallboys never once lifted her face from her clasped hands. The hands of the clock pointed to a quarter past eleven when Robert began his story. The clock struck twelve as he finished. He had carefully suppressed the names of his uncle and his uncle's wife in relating the circumstances in which they had been concerned. "'Now, sir,' he said, when the story had been told, "'I await your decision. You have heard my reasons for coming to this terrible conclusion. In what manner do these reasons influence you?' "'They don't in any way turn me from my previous opinion.' answered Mr. Harcourt Tallboys, with the unreasoning pride of an obstinate man. "'I still think, as I thought before, that my son is alive, and that his disappearance is a conspiracy against myself. I decline to become the victim of that conspiracy.' 
"'And you tell me to stop?' asked Robert solemnly. "'I tell you only this. If you go on, you go on for your own satisfaction, not for mine. I see nothing in what you have told me to alarm me for the safety of—your friend.' "'So be it, then,' exclaimed Robert suddenly. "'From this moment I wash my hands of this business. From this moment the purpose of my life shall be to forget it.' He rose as he spoke, and took his hat from the table on which he had placed it. He looked at Clara Talboys. Her attitude had never changed since she had dropped her face upon her hands. "'Good morning, Mr. Talboys,' he said gravely. "'God grant that you are right. God grant that I am wrong.' but I fear a day will come when you will have reason to regret your apathy respecting the untimely fate of your only son." He bowed gravely to Mr. Harcourt Talboys and to the lady, whose face was hidden by her hands. He lingered for a moment looking at Miss Talboys, thinking that she would look up, that she would make some sign or show some desire to detain him. Mr. Talboys rang for the emotionless servant who led Robert off to the hall door with the solemnity of manner which would have been in perfect keeping had he been leading him to execution. "'She is like her father,' thought Mr. Audley, as he glanced for the last time at the drooping head. "'Poor George, you had need of one friend in this world, for you have had very few to love you.'" End of chapter 22 Chapter Twenty Three of Lady Audley's Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret, by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Twenty Three. Clara. Robert Audley found the driver asleep upon the box of his lumbering vehicle. He had been entertained with beer of so hard a nature as to induce temporary strangulation in the daring imbiber thereof, and he was very glad to welcome the return of his fare. The old white horse, who looked as if he had been foaled in the year in which the carriage had been built, and seemed, like the carriage, to have outlived the fashion, was as fast asleep as his master, and woke up with a jerk as Robert came down the stony flight of steps attended by his executioner, who waited respectfully till Mr. Audley had entered the vehicle and been turned off. The horse, roused by a smack of his driver's whip and a shake of the shabby reins, crawled off in a semi-somnambulant state, and Robert, with his hat very much over his eyes, thought of his missing friend. He had played in these stiff gardens, and under these dreary firs, years ago, perhaps, if it were possible for the most frolicsome youth to be playful within the range of Mr. Harcourt Talboy's hard grey eyes. He had played beneath these dark trees, perhaps, with the sister who had heard of his fate to-day without a tear. Robert Audley looked at the rigid primness of the orderly grounds, wondering how George could have grown up in such a place to be the frank, generous, careless friend whom he had known. How was it that with his father perpetually before his eyes, he had not grown up after the father's disagreeable model, to be a nuisance to his fellow-men. How was it? Because we have some one higher than our parents to thank for the souls which make us great or small, and because while family noses and family chins may descend in orderly sequence from father to son, from grandsire to grandchild, as the fashion of the fading flowers of one year is reproduced in the budding blossoms of the next, the spirit, 
more subtle than the wind which blows among these flowers, independent of all earthly rule, owns no order but the harmonious law of God. "'Thank God!' thought Robert Audley. "'Thank God! It is over. My poor friend must rest in his unknown grave, and I shall not be the means of bringing disgrace upon those I love. It will come, perhaps, sooner or later, but it will not come through me. The crisis is past, and I am free." He felt an unutterable relief in this thought. His generous nature revolted at the office into which he had found himself drawn, the office of spy, the collector of damning facts that led on to horrible deductions. He drew a long breath, a sigh of relief at his release. It was all over now. The fly was crawling out of the gate of the plantation as he thought this, and he stood up in the vehicle to look back at the dreary fir-trees, the gravel paths, the smooth grass, and the great desolate-looking red-brick mansion. He was startled by the appearance of a woman running, almost flying, along the carriage-drive by which he had come, and waving a handkerchief in her uplifted hand. He stared at this singular apparition for some moments in silent wonder, before he was able to reduce his stupefaction into words. "'Is it me the flying female wants?' he exclaimed at last. "'Uh, you'd better stop, perhaps,' he added to the flyman. "'It is an age of eccentricity, an abnormal era of the world's history. She may want me. Very likely I left my pocket-handkerchief behind me, and Mr. Tallboys has sent this person with it. Perhaps I'd better get out and go and meet her. It's civil to send my handkerchief.' Mr. Robert Audley deliberately descended from the fly, and walked slowly toward the hurrying female figure, which gained upon him rapidly. He was rather short-sighted, and it was not until she came very near to him that he saw who she was. "'Good heaven!' he exclaimed. "'It's Miss Tallboys!' It was Miss Tallboys, flushed and breathless, with a woollen shawl thrown over her head. Robert Audley now saw her face clearly for the first time, and he saw that she was very handsome. She had brown eyes like George's, a pale complexion. She had been flushed when she approached him, but the color faded away as she recovered her breath. Regular features, with a mobility of expression which bore record of every change of feeling. He saw all this in a few moments, and he wondered only the more at the stoicism of her manner during his interview with Mr. Tallboys. There were no tears in her eyes, but they were bright with a feverish luster, terribly bright and dry, and he could see that her lips trembled as she spoke to him. "'Miss Tallboys,' he said, "'what can I—why—' She interrupted him suddenly, catching at his wrist with her disengaged hand. She was holding her shawl in the other. "'Oh, let me speak to you,' she cried. "'Let me speak to you, or I shall go mad. I heard it all. I believe what you believe, and I shall go mad unless I can do something—something toward avenging his death.' For a few moments Robert Audley was too much bewildered to answer her. Of all things possible upon earth, he had least expected to behold her thus. "'Take my arm, Miss Tallboys,' he said. "'Pray calm yourself. Let us walk a little way back toward the house, and talk quietly. I would not have spoken as I did before you, had I known—had you known that I loved my brother,' she said quickly. "'How should you know that I loved him? How should any one think that I loved him, when I have never had power to give him a welcome beneath that roof, or a kindly word from his father?' How should I dare to betray my love for him in that house when I knew that even a sister's affection would be turned to his disadvantage? You do not know my father, Mr. Audley. I do. 
I knew that to intercede for George would have been to ruin his cause. I knew that to leave matters in my father's hands, and to trust to time, was my only chance of ever seeing that dear brother again. And I waited, waited patiently, always hoping for the best, for I knew that my father loved his only son. I see your contemptuous smile, Mr. Audley, and I dare say it is difficult for a stranger to believe that underneath his affected stoicism my father conceals some degree of affection for his children. No very warm attachment, perhaps, for he has always ruled his life by the strict law of duty. Stop! she said suddenly, laying her hand upon his arm, and looking back through the straight avenue of pines. I ran out of the house by the back way. Papa must not see me talking to you, Mr. Audley, and he must not see the fly standing at the gate. Will you go into the high road and tell the man to drive on a little way? I will come out of the plantation by a little gate further on, and meet you in the road. But you will catch cold, Miss Tallboys, remonstrated Robert, looking at her anxiously, for he saw that she was trembling. You are shivering now. Not with cold, she answered. I am thinking of my brother George. If you have any pity for the only sister of your lost friend, do what I ask you, Mr. Audley. I must speak to you. I must speak to you. Calmly, if I can." She put her hand to her head as if trying to collect her thoughts, and then pointed to the gate. Robert bowed and left her. He told the man to drive slowly toward the station, and walked on by the side of the tarred fence surrounding Mr. Tallboy's grounds. About a hundred yards beyond the principal entrance, he came to a little wooden gate in the fence, and waited at it for Miss Tallboy's. She joined him presently, with her shawl still over her head, and her eyes still bright and tearless. "'Will you walk with me inside the plantation?' she said. "'We might be observed on the high road.' He bowed, passed through the gate, and shut it behind him. When she took his offered arm, he found that she was still trembling, trembling very violently. "'Pray, pray calm yourself, Miss Tallboys,' he said. "'I may have been deceived in the opinion which I have formed. I may—' "'No! No, no!' she exclaimed. "'You are not deceived. My brother has been murdered. Tell me the name of that woman, the woman whom you suspect of being concerned in his disappearance, in his murder.' "'That I cannot do until—' "'Until when?' "'Until I know that she is guilty. You told my father that you would abandon all idea of discovering the truth, that you would rest satisfied to leave my brother's fate a horrible mystery never to be solved upon this earth. But you will not do so, Mr. Audley. You will not be false to the memory of your friend. You will see vengeance done upon those who have destroyed him. You will do this, will you not?" A gloomy shadow spread itself like a dark veil over Robert Audley's handsome face. He remembered what he had said the day before at Southampton. A hand that is stronger than my own is beckoning me onward, upon the dark road. A quarter of an hour before, he had believed that all was over, and that he was released from the dreadful duty of discovering the secret of George's death. Now this girl, this apparently passionless girl, had found a voice, and was urging him on toward his fate. "'If you knew what misery to me may be involved in discovering the truth, Miss Tallboys,' he said, "'you would scarcely ask me to pursue this business any further.' "'But I do ask you,' she answered, with suppressed passion. I do ask you, I ask you to avenge my brother's untimely death. Will you do so? Yes or no? What if I answer no? Then I will do it myself, 
she exclaimed, looking at him with her bright brown eyes. "'I myself will follow up the clue to this mystery. I will find this woman, though you refuse to tell me in what part of England my brother disappeared. I will travel from one end of the world to the other to find the secret of his fate, if you refuse to find it for me. I am of age, my own mistress, rich, for I have money left me by one of my aunts. I shall be able to employ those who will help me in my search, and I will make it to their interest to serve me well. Choose between the two alternatives, Mr. Audley. Shall you or I find my brother's murderer? He looked in her face, and saw that her resolution was the fruit of no transient womanish enthusiasm which would give way under the iron hand of difficulty. Her beautiful features, naturally statuesque in their noble outlines, seemed transformed into marble by the rigidity of her expression. The face in which he looked was the face of a woman whom death only could turn from her purpose. "'I have grown up in an atmosphere of suppression,' she said quietly. "'I have stifled and dwarfed the natural feelings of my heart, until they have become unnatural in their intensity. I have been allowed neither friends nor lovers. My mother died when I was very young. My father has always been to me what you saw him to-day. I have had no one but my brother.' All the love that my heart can hold has been centred upon him. Do you wonder, then, that when I hear that his young life has been ended by the hand of treachery, that I wish to see vengeance done upon the traitor? Oh, my God! she cried, suddenly clasping her hands and looking up at the cold winter sky. Lead me to the murder of my brother, and let mine be the hand to avenge his untimely death. Robert Audley stood looking at her with awe-stricken admiration. Her beauty was elevated into sublimity by the intensity of her suppressed passion. She was different to all other women that he had ever seen. His cousin was pretty, his uncle's wife was lovely, but Clara Talboys was beautiful. Niobe's face, sublimated by sorrow, could scarcely have been more purely classical than hers. Even her dress, Puritan in its grey simplicity, became her beauty better than a more beautiful dress would have become a less beautiful woman. "'Miss Talboys,' said Robert, after a pause, "'your brother shall not be unavenged. He shall not be forgotten. I do not think that any professional aid which you could procure would lead you as surely to the secret of this mystery as I can lead you, if you are patient and trust me.' "'I will trust you,' she answered, "'for I see that you will help me.' "'I believe that it is my destiny to do so,' he said solemnly. In the whole course of his conversation with Harcourt Talboys, Robert Audley had carefully avoided making any deductions from the circumstances which he had submitted to George's father. He had simply told the story of the missing man's life, from the hour of his arriving in London to that of his disappearance, but he saw that Clara Talboys had arrived at the same conclusion as himself, and that it was tacitly understood between them. "'Have you any letters of your brother's, Miss Talboys?' he asked. Two. One written soon after his marriage, the other written at Liverpool, the night before he sailed for Australia. "'Will you let me see them?' "'Yes. I will send them to you if you will give me your address. You will write to me from time to time, will you not, to tell me whether you are approaching the truth. I shall be obliged to act secretly here, but I am going to leave home in two or three months, and I shall be perfectly free then to act as I please.' "'You are not going to leave England?' Robert asked. Oh, no! I am only going to pay a long-promised visit to some friends in Essex." Robert started so violently as Clara Talboy said this, that she looked suddenly at his face. 
the agitation visible there betrayed a part of his secret. "'My brother George disappeared in Essex,' she said. He could not contradict her. "'I am sorry you have discovered so much,' he replied. "'My position becomes every day more complicated, every day more painful. Good-bye.' She gave him her hand mechanically when he held out his, but it was as cold as marble, and lay listlessly in his own, and fell like a log at her side when he released it. "'Pray lose no time in returning to the house,' he said earnestly. "'I fear you will suffer from this morning's work.' "'Suffer!' she exclaimed scornfully. "'You talk to me of suffering, when the only creature in this world who ever loved me has been taken from it in the bloom of youth. What can there be for me henceforth but suffering? What is the cold to me?' she said, flinging back her shawl and bearing her beautiful head to the bitter wind. I would walk from here to London, barefoot through the snow, and never stop by the way if I could bring him back to life. What would I not do to bring him back? What would I not do? The words broke from her in a wail of passionate sorrow, and clasping her hands before her face, she wept for the first time that day. The violence of her sobs shook her slender frame, and she was obliged to lean against the trunk of a tree for support. Robert looked at her with a tender compassion in his face. She was so like the friend whom he had loved and lost, that it was impossible for him to think of her as a stranger, impossible to remember that they had met that morning for the first time. "'Pray, pray, be calm,' he said. "'Hope even against hope. We may both be deceived. Your brother may still live.' "'Oh, if it were so!' she murmured passionately. "'If it could be so! Let us try and hope that it may be so.' "'No,' she answered, looking at him through her tears. "'Let us hope for nothing but revenge. Good-bye, Mr. Audley. Stop! Your address.' He gave her a card which she put into the pocket of her dress. "'I will send you George's letters,' she said. "'They may help you. Good-bye.' She left him half bewildered by the passionate energy of her manner and the noble beauty of her face. He watched her as she disappeared among the straight trunks of the fir-trees, and then walked slowly out of the plantation. "'Heaven help those who stand between me and the secret,' he thought, "'for they will be sacrificed to the memory of George Tallboys.'" End of chapter 23 Chapter Twenty Four of Lady Audley's Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Twenty Four. George's Letters. Robert Audley did not return to Southampton but took a ticket for the first uptown train that left Wareham, and reached Waterloo Bridge an hour or two after dark. The snow, which had been hard and crisp in Dorsetshire, was a black and greasy slush in the Waterloo Road, thawed by the flaring lamps of the gin-palaces and the glaring gas in the butcher's shops. Robert Audley shrugged his shoulders as he looked at the dingy streets through which the hansom carried him, the cabman choosing, with that delicious instinct which seems innate in the drivers of hackney vehicles, all those dark and hideous thoroughfares utterly unknown to the ordinary pedestrian. "'What a pleasant thing life is,' 
thought the barrister. What an unspeakable boon! What an overpowering blessing! Let any man make a calculation of his existence, subtracting the hours in which he has been thoroughly happy, really and entirely at his ease, without one arrière pensée to mar his enjoyment, without the most infinitesimal cloud to overshadow the brightness of his horizon. Let him do this, and surely he will laugh in utter bitterness of soul when he sets down the sum of his felicity, and discovers the pitiful smallness of the amount. He will have enjoyed himself for a week or ten days in thirty years, perhaps. In thirty years of dull December, and blustering March, and showery April, and dark November weather, there may have been seven or eight glorious August days, through which the sun has blazed in cloudless radiance, and summer breezes have breathed perpetual balm. How fondly we recollect those solitary days of pleasure, and hope for their recurrence, and try to plan the circumstances that made them bright, and arrange and predestinate, and diplomatize with fate for a renewal of the remembered joy. As if any joy could ever be built up out of such and such constituent parts, as if happiness were not essentially accidental, a bright and wandering bird utterly irregular in its migrations, with us one summer's day, and for ever gone from us on the next. Look at marriage, for instance, mused Robert, who was as meditative in the jolting vehicle for whose occupation he was to pay sixpence a mile, as if he had been riding a mustang on the wild loneliness of the prairies. Look at marriage. Who is to say which shall be the one judicious selection out of nine hundred and ninety-nine mistakes? Who shall decide from the first aspect of the slimy creature, which is to be the one eagle out of the colossal bag of snakes? That girl on the curbstone yonder, waiting to cross the street when my chariot shall have passed, may be the one woman out of every female creature in this vast universe who could make me a happy man. Yet I pass her by, bespatter her with the mud from my wheels, in my helpless ignorance, in my blind submission to the awful hand of fatality. If that girl, Clara Tallboys, had been five minutes later, I should have left Dorsetshire thinking her cold, hard, and unwomanly, and should have gone to my grave with that mistake part and parcel of my mind. I took her for a stately and heartless automaton. I know her now to be a noble and beautiful woman. What an incalculable difference this may make in my life! When I left that house, I went out into the winter day with the determination of abandoning all further thought of the secret of George's death. I see her, and she forces me onward upon the loathsome path, the crooked byway of watchfulness and suspicion. How can I say to this sister of my dead friend, I believe that your brother has been murdered, I believe that I know by whom, but I will take no step to set my doubts at rest or to confirm my fears? I cannot say this. This woman knows half my secret. She will soon possess herself of the rest. And then—and then— the cab stopped in the midst of Robert Audley's meditation, and he had to pay the cabman, and submit to all the dreary mechanism of life, which is the same whether we are glad or sorry, whether we are to be married or hung, elevated to the wool-sack, or disbarred by our brother benchers on some mysterious technical tangle of wrong-doing, which is a social enigma to those outside the forum domesticum of the Middle Temple. We are apt to be angry with this cruel hardness in our life this unflinching regularity in the smaller wheels and meaner mechanism of the human machine, which knows no stoppage or cessation, though the mainspring be for ever hollow, and the hands pointing to purposeless figures on a shattered dial. Who has not felt, in the first madness of sorrow, 
an unreasoning rage against the mute propriety of chairs and tables, the stiff squareness of turkey carpets, the unbending obstinacy of the outward apparatus of existence. We want to root up gigantic trees in a primeval forest, and to tear their huge branches asunder in our convulsive grasp, and the utmost that we can do for the relief of our passion is to knock over an easy-chair, or smash a few shillings' worth of Mr. Copeland's manufacture. Madhouses are large and only too numerous, and yet surely it is strange they are not larger, when we think of how many helpless wretches must beat their brains against this hopeless persistency of the orderly outward world, as compared with the storm and tempest, the riot and confusion within, when we remember how many minds must tremble upon the narrow boundary between reason and unreason, mad to-day and sane to-morrow, mad yesterday and sane to-day. Robert Audley had directed the cabman to drop him at the corner of Chancery Lane, and he ascended the brilliantly lighted staircase leading to the dining-saloon of the London, and seated himself at one of the snug tables with a confused sense of emptiness and weariness, rather than any agreeable sensation of healthy hunger. He had come to the luxurious eating-house to dine, because it was absolutely necessary to eat something somewhere, and a great deal easier to get a very good dinner from Mr. Sawyer than a very bad one from Mrs. Maloney, whose mind ran in one narrow channel of chops and steaks, only variable by small creeks and outlets in the way of broiled sole, or boiled mackerel. The solicitous waiter tried in vain to rouse poor Robert to a proper sense of the solemnity of the dinner-question. He muttered something to the effect that the man might bring him anything he liked, and the friendly waiter, who knew Robert as a frequent guest at the little tables, went back to his master with a doleful face, to say that Mr. Audley, from Figtree Court, was evidently out of spirits. Robert ate his dinner, and drank a pint of Moselle, but he had poor appreciation of the excellence of the viands, or the delicate fragrance of the wine. The mental monologue still went on, and the young philosopher of the modern school was arguing the favourite modern question of the nothingness of everything, and the folly of taking too much trouble to walk upon a road that went nowhere, or to compass a work that meant nothing. "'I accept the dominion of that pale girl with the statuesque features and the calm brown eyes,' he thought. "'I recognise the power of a mind superior to my own, and I yield to it, and bow down to it. I have been acting for myself, and thinking for myself, for the last few months, and I'm tired of the unnatural business. I have been false to the leading principle of my life, and I've suffered for the folly. I found two grey hairs in my head the week before last— and an impertinent crow has planted a delicate impression of his foot under my right eye. Yes, I'm getting old upon the right side. And why? Why should it be so? He pushed away his plate and lifted his eyebrows, staring at the crumbs upon the glistening damask as he pondered the question. "'What the devil am I doing in this galère?' he asked. "'But I am in it, and I can't get out of it. So I better submit myself to the brown-eyed girl— and do what she tells me patiently and faithfully. What a wonderful solution to life's enigma there is in petticoat government! Man might lie in the sunshine and eat lotuses, and fancy it always afternoon if his wife would let him. But she won't, bless her impulsive heart and active mind. She knows better than that. Who ever heard of a woman taking life as it ought to be taken? Instead of supporting it as an unavoidable nuisance, only redeemable by its brevity, she goes through it as if it were a pageant or a procession. She dresses for it, and simpers and grins and gesticulates for it. She pushes her neighbours and struggles for a good place in the dismal march. She elbows and writhes, and tramples and prances to the one end making the most of the misery. 
She gets up early and sits up late, and is loud and restless and noising and unpitying. She drags her husband on to the woolsack, or pushes him into Parliament. She drives him full butt at the dear, lazy machinery of government, and knocks and buffets him about the wheels and cranks and screws and pulleys, until somebody, for quiet's sake, makes him something that she wanted him to be made. That's why incompetent men sometimes sit in high places, and interpose their poor muddled intellects between the things to be done and the people that can do them, making universal confusion in the helpless innocence of well-placed incapacity. The square men in the round holes are pushed into them by their wives. The eastern potentate, who declared that women were at the bottom of all mischief, should have gone a little further and seen why it is so. It is because women are never lazy. They don't know what it is to be quiet. They are Semiramides, and Cleopatras, and Jones of Arc, Queen Elizabeths, and Catherines the Second, and they riot in battle, and murder, and clamour, and desperation. If they can't agitate the universe, and play at ball with hemispheres, they'll make mountains of warfare, and vexation out of domestic molehills, and social storms, and household teacups. Forbid them to hold forth upon the freedom of nations and the wrongs of mankind, and they'll quarrel with Mrs. Jones about the shape of a mantle, or the character of a small maid-servant. To call them the weaker sex is to utter a hideous mockery. They are the stronger sex, the noisier, the more persevering, the most self-assertive sex. They want freedom of opinion, variety of occupation, do they? Let them have it. Let them be lawyers, doctors, preachers, teachers, soldiers, legislators, anything they like. But let them be quiet, if they can. Mr. Audley pushed his hands through the thick luxuriance of his straight brown hair, and uplifted the dark mass in his despair. "'I hate women,' he thought savagely. "'They're bold, brazen, abominable creatures, invented for the annoyance and destruction of their superiors. Look at this business of poor George's. It's all woman's work from one end to the other. He marries a woman, and his father casts him off penniless and professionless. He hears of the woman's death, and he breaks his heart, his good, honest, manly heart, with a million of the treacherous lumps of self-interest and mercenary calculation which beat in women's breasts. He goes to a woman's house, and he is never seen alive again. And now I find myself driven into a corner by another woman, of whose existence I had never thought until this day. And—and and then, mused Mr. Audley, rather irrelevantly, there's Alicia, too. She's another nuisance. She'd like me to marry her, I know, and she'll make me do it, I dare say, before she's done with me. But I'd much rather not. Though she is a dear, bouncing, generous thing, bless her poor little heart." Robert paid his bill and rewarded the waiter liberally. The young barrister was very willing to distribute his comfortable little income among the people who served him, for he carried his indifference to all things in the universe, even to the matter of pounds, shillings, and pence. Perhaps he was rather exceptional in this, as he may frequently find that the philosopher who calls life an empty delusion is pretty sharp in the investment of his monies, and recognizes the tangible nature of India bonds, Spanish certificates, and Egyptian scrip, as contrasted with the painful uncertainty of an ego, or non-ego, in metaphysics. The snug rooms in Figtree Court seemed dreary in their orderly quiet to Robert Audley upon this particular evening. He had no inclination for his French novels, though there was a packet of uncut romances, comic and sentimental, ordered a month before, waiting this pleasure upon one of the tables. He took his favourite meerschaum, and dropped into his favourite chair with a sigh. "'It's comfortable, but it seems so deuced lonely to-night. If poor George were sitting opposite to me, or—' 
or even George's sister. She's very like him. Existence might be a little more endurable. But when a fellow's lived by himself for eight or ten years, he begins to be bad company. He burst out laughing presently as he finished his first pipe. The idea of my thinking of George's sister, he thought. What a preposterous idiot I am! The next day's post brought him a letter in a firm but feminine hand which was strange to him. He found the little packet lying on his breakfast table, beside the warm French roll wrapped in a napkin by Mrs. Maloney's careful but rather dirty hands. He contemplated the envelope for some minutes before opening it, not in any wonder as to his correspondent, for the letter bore the postmark of Grange Heath, and he knew that there was only one person who was likely to write to him from that obscure village, but in that lazy dreaminess which was a part of his character. "'From Clara Tallboys,' he murmured slowly, as he looked critically at the clearly shaped letters of his name and address. "'Yes, from Clara Tallboys, most decidedly. I recognized a feminine resemblance to poor George's hand. Neater than his, and more decided than his. But very like, very like.' He turned the letter over and examined the seal which bore his friend's familiar crest. "'I wonder what she says to me,' he thought. "'It's a long letter, I dare say. She's the kind of woman who would write a long letter. A letter that will urge me on, drive me forward, wrench me out of myself, I've no doubt. But that can't be helped. So here goes.' He tore open the envelope with a sigh of resignation. It contained nothing but George's two letters, and a few words written on the flap. I send the letters. Please preserve and return them. C.T. The letter, written from Liverpool, told nothing of the writer's life except his sudden determination of starting for a new world, to redeem the fortunes that had been ruined in the old. The letter, written almost immediately after George's marriage, contained a full description of his wife, such a description as a man could only write within three weeks of a love-match, a description in which every feature was minutely catalogued every grace of form or beauty of expression fondly dwelt upon, every charm of manner lovingly depicted. Robert Audley read the letter three times before he laid it down. "'If George could have known for what a purpose this description would serve when he wrote it,' thought the young barrister, "'surely his hand would have fallen paralyzed by horror, and powerless to shape one syllable of these tender words.'" End of chapter 24 Chapter Twenty Five of Lady Audley's Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Twenty Five Retrograde Investigation. The dreary London January dragged its dull length slowly out. The last slender records of Christmas time were swept away, and Robert Audley still lingered in town, still spent his lonely evenings in his quiet sitting-room in Fig-Tree Court, still wandered listlessly in the Temple Gardens on sunny mornings, absently listening to the children's babble, idly watching their play. He had many friends among the inhabitants of the quaint old buildings round him. He had other friends far away in pleasant country places, whose spare bedrooms were always at Bob's service, whose cheerful firesides had snugly luxurious chairs specially allotted to him. But he seemed to have lost all taste for companionship, 
all sympathy with the pleasures and occupations of his class, since the disappearance of George Tallboys. Elderly benchers indulged in facetious observations upon the young man's pale face and moody manner. They suggested the probability of some unhappy attachment, some feminine ill-usage as the secret cause of the change. They told him to be of good cheer, and invited him to supper-parties, at which lovely woman with all her faults, God bless her, was drunk by gentlemen who shed tears as they proposed the toast, and were maudlin and unhappy in their cups toward the close of the entertainment. Robert had no inclination for the wine-bibbing and the punch-making. The one idea of his life had become his master. He was the bonden slave of one gloomy thought, one horrible presentiment. A dark cloud was brooding above his uncle's house, and it was his hand which was to give the signal for the thunderclap and the tempest that was to ruin that noble life. "'If she would only take warning and run away,' he said to himself sometimes, "'heaven knows I have given her a fair chance. Why doesn't she take it and run away?' He heard sometimes from Sir Michael, sometimes from Alicia. The young lady's letter rarely contained more than a few curt lines informing him that her papa was well, and that Lady Audley was in very high spirits, amusing herself in her usual frivolous manner, and with her usual disregard for other people. A letter from Mr. Marchmont, the Southampton schoolmaster, informed Robert that little Georgie was going on very well, but that he was behind-hand in his education, and had not yet passed the intellectual rubicon of words of two syllables. Captain Malden had called to see his grandson, but that privilege had been withheld from him, in accordance with Mr. Audley's instructions. The old man had furthermore sent a parcel of pastry and sweetmeats to the little boy, which had also been rejected on the ground of indigestible and bilious tendencies in the edibles. Toward the close of February, Robert received a letter from his cousin Alicia, which hurried him one step further forward toward his destiny, by causing him to return to the house from which he had become in a manner exiled at the instigation of his uncle's wife. "'Papa is very ill,' Alicia wrote. "'Not dangerously ill, thank God, but confined to his room by an attack of low fever which has succeeded a violent cold. Come and see him, Robert, if you have any regard for your nearest relations. He has spoken about you several times, and I know he will be glad to have you with him. Come at once, but say nothing about this letter. From your affectionate cousin, Alicia." A sick and deadly terror chilled Robert Audley's heart as he read this letter, a vague yet hideous fear, which he dared not shape into any definite form. "'Have I done right?' he thought, in the first agony of this new horror. Have I done right to tamper with justice, and to keep the secret of my doubts and the hope that I was shielding those I love from sorrow and disgrace? What shall I do if I find him ill, very ill, dying, perhaps, dying upon her breast? What shall I do?" One course lay clear before him, and the first step of that course was a rapid journey to Audley Court. He packed his portmanteau, jumped into a cab, and reached the railway station within an hour of his receipt of Alicia's letter, which had come by the afternoon post. The dim village lights flickered faintly through the growing dusk when Robert reached Audley. He left his portmanteau with the station-master, and walked at a leisurely pace through the quiet lanes that led away to the still loneliness of the court. The overarching trees stretched their leafless branches above his head, bare and weird in the dusky light. A low moaning wind swept across the flat meadow-land, and tossed those rugged branches hither and thither against the dark grey sky. They looked like the ghostly arms of shrunken and withered giants, beckoning Robert to his uncle's house. 
They looked like threatening phantoms in the chill winter twilight, gesticulating to him to hasten upon his journey. The long avenue, so bright and pleasant when the perfumed limes scattered their light bloom upon the pathway, and the dog-rose leaves floated on the summer air, was terribly bleak and desolate in the cheerless interregnum that divides the homely joys of Christmas from the pale blush of coming spring, a dead pause in the year, in which nature seems to lie in a tranced sleep, awaiting the wondrous signal for the budding of the flower. A mournful presentiment crept into Robert Audley's heart as he drew nearer to his uncle's house. Every changing outline in the landscape was familiar to him. Every bend of the trees, every caprice of the untrammeled branches, every undulation in the bare hawthorn hedge, broken by dwarf horse-chestnuts, stunted willows, blackberry, and hazel-bushes. Sir Michael had been a second father to the young man, a generous and noble friend, a grave and earnest adviser, and perhaps the strongest sentiment of Robert's heart was his love for the grey-bearded baronet. But the grateful affection was so much a part of himself, that it seldom found an outlet in words, and a stranger would never have fathomed the depth of feeling which lay, a deep and powerful current, beneath the stagnant surface of the barrister's character. "'What would become of this place if my uncle were to die?' he thought, and he drew near to the ivied archway, and the still water-pools, coldly grey in the twilight. Would other people live in the old house, and sit under the low oak ceilings in the homely familiar rooms? That wonderful faculty of association, so interwoven with the inmost fibres of even the hardest nature, filled the young man's breast with a prophetic pain as he remembered that, however long or late, the day must come on which the oaken shutters would be closed for a while, and the sunshine shut out of the house he loved. It was painful to him even to remember this as it must always be painful to think of the narrow lease the greatest upon this earth can ever hold of its grandeurs. Is it so wonderful that some wayfarers drop asleep under the hedges, scarcely caring to toil onward on a journey that leads to no abiding habitation? Is it wonderful that there have been quietists in the world ever since Christ's religion was first preached upon earth? Is it strange that there is a patient endurance and tranquil resignation, calm expectation of that which is to come on the furthest shore of the dark-flowing river? Is it not rather to be wondered that anybody should ever care to be great for greatness's sake, for any other reason than pure conscientiousness, the simple fidelity of the servant who fears to lay his talents by in a napkin, knowing that indifference is near akin to dishonesty? If Robert Audley had lived in the time of Thomas a Kempis, he would very likely have built himself a narrow hermitage amid some forest loneliness, and spent his life in tranquil imitation of the reputed author of the imitation. As it was, Figtree Court was a pleasant hermitage in its way, and for breviaries and books of hours, I am ashamed to say the young barrister substituted Paul de Kock and Dumas Fils. But his sins were of so simply negative an order, that it would have been very easy for him to have abandoned them for negative virtues. Only one solitary light was visible in the long, irregular range of windows facing the archway, as Robert passed under the gloomy shade of the rustling ivy, restless in the chill moaning of the wind. He recognized that lighted window as the large oriel in his uncle's room. When last he had looked at the old house it had been gay with visitors, every window glittering like a low star in the dusk. Now, dark and silent, it faced the winter's night like some dismal baronial habitation, deep in a woodland solitude. The man who opened the door to the unlooked-for visitor brightened as he recognized his master's nephew. "'Sir Michael will be cheered up a bit, sir, by the sight of you,' he said 
as he ushered Robert Audley into the firelit library, which seemed desolate by reason of the baronet's easy-chair standing empty on the broad hearth-rug. "'Shall I bring you some dinner here, sir, before you go upstairs?' the servant asked. "'My lady and Miss Audley have dined early during my master's illness, but I can bring you anything you would please to take, sir.' "'I'll take nothing until I have seen my uncle,' Robert answered hurriedly. "'That is to say, if I can see him at once. He is not too ill to receive me, I suppose?' he added anxiously. "'Oh, no, sir, not too ill. Only a little low, sir. This way, if you please.' He conducted Robert up the short flight of shallow oaken stairs to the octagon chamber in which George Talboys had sat long five months before, staring absently at my lady's portrait. The picture was finished now, and hung in the post of honour opposite the window, amidst Claude's, Poussin, and Wouverman's, whose less brilliant hues were killed by the vivid colouring of the modern artist. The bright face looked out of that tangled glitter of golden hair, in which the pre-Raphaelites delight, with a mocking smile, as Robert paused for a moment to glance at the well-remembered picture. Two or three moments afterward he had passed through my lady's boudoir and dressing-room, and stood upon the threshold of Sir Michael's room. The baronet lay in a quiet sleep, his arm laying outside the bed, and his strong hand clasped in his young wife's delicate fingers. Alicia sat in a low chair beside the broad open hearth, on which the huge logs burned fiercely in the frosty atmosphere. The interior of this luxurious bedchamber might have made a striking picture for an artist's pencil. The massive furniture, dark and sombre, yet broken up and relieved here and there by scraps of gilding, and masses of glowing colour. The elegance of every detail, in which wealth was subservient to purity of taste. And last, but greatest in importance, the graceful figures of the two women, and the noble form of the old man would have formed a worthy study for any painter. Lucy Audley, with her disordered hair in a pale haze of yellow gold about her thoughtful face, the flowing lines of her soft muslin dressing-gown falling in straight folds to her feet, and clasped at the waist by a narrow circlet of agate links, might have served as a model for a medieval saint, in one of the tiny chapels hidden away in the nooks and corners of a grey old cathedral, unchanged by Reformation or Cromwell. And what saintly martyr of the Middle Ages could have borne a holier aspect than the man whose grey beard lay upon the dark silken coverlet of the stately bed? Robert paused upon the threshold, fearful of awaking his uncle. The two ladies had heard his step, cautious though he had been, and lifted their heads to look at him. My lady's face, quietly watching the sick man, had worn an anxious earnestness which made it only more beautiful. But the same face, recognizing Robert Audley, faded from its delicate brightness, and looked scared and wan in the lamplight. "'Mr. Audley!' she cried, in a faint, tremulous voice. "'Hush!' whispered Alicia, with a warning gesture. "'You will wake Papa.' "'How good of you to come, Robert!' she added, in the same whispered tones, beckoning to her cousin to take an empty chair near the bed. The young man seated himself in the indicated seat at the bottom of the bed, and opposite to my lady, who sat close beside the pillows. He looked long and earnestly at the face of the sleeper, still longer, still more earnestly at the face of Lady Audley, which was slowly recovering its natural hues. "'He has not been very ill, has he?' Robert asked, in the same key as that in which Alicia had spoken. My lady answered the question. "'Oh, no, not dangerously ill,' she said, without taking her eyes from her husband's face. But still we have been anxious, very, very anxious." Robert never relaxed his scrutiny of that pale face. "'She shall look at me,' he thought. 
I will make her meet my eyes, and I will read her as I have read her before. She shall know how useless her artifices are with me." He paused for a few minutes before he spoke again. The regular breathing of the sleeper, the ticking of a gold hunting-watch at the head of the bed, and the crackling of the burning logs were the only sounds that broke the stillness. "'I have no doubt you have been anxious, Lady Audley,' Robert said, after a pause, fixing my lady's eyes as they wandered furtively to his face. "'There is no one to whom my uncle's life can be of more value than to you. Your happiness, your prosperity, your safety depend alike upon his existence.' The whisper in which he uttered these words was too low to reach the other side of the room where Alicia sat. Lucy Audley's met those of the speaker with some gleam of triumph in their light. "'I know that,' she said. "'Those who strike me must strike through him.' She pointed to the sleeper as she spoke, still looking at Robert Audley. She defied him with her blue eyes, their brightness intensified by the triumph in their glance. She defied him with her quiet smile, a smile of fatal beauty, full of lurking significance and mysterious meaning, the smile which the artist had exaggerated in his portrait of Sir Michael's wife. Robert turned away from the lovely face, and shaded his eyes with his hand, putting a barrier between my lady and himself, a screen which baffled her penetration and provoked her curiosity. Was he still watching her? Or was he thinking? And of what was he thinking? Robert had been seated at the bedside for upward of an hour before his uncle awoke. The baronet was delighted at his nephew's coming. "'It was very good of you to come to me, Bob,' he said. "'I have been thinking of you a good deal since I have been ill.' You and Lucy must be good friends, you know, Bob, and you must learn to think of her as your aunt, sir, though she is young and beautiful, and—and—you understand, eh?" Robert grasped his uncle's hand, but he looked down as he answered. "'I do understand you, sir,' he said quietly, "'and I gave you my word of honour that I am steeled against my lady's fascinations. She knows that as well as I do.' Lucy Audley made a little grimace with her pretty little lips. "'Bah, you silly Robert!' she exclaimed. "'You take everything au sérieux. If I thought you were rather too young for a nephew, it was only in my fear of other people's foolish gossip, not from any—' She hesitated for a moment, and escaped any conclusion to her sentence by the timely intervention of Mr. Dawson, her late employer, who entered the room upon his evening visit while she was speaking. He felt the patient's pulse— asked two or three questions, pronounced the baronet to be steadily improving, exchanged a few commonplace remarks with Alicia and Lady Audley, and prepared to leave the room. Robert rose and accompanied him to the door. "'I will light you to the staircase,' he said, taking a candle from one of the tables, and lighting it at the lamp. "'No, no, Mr. Audley, pray do not trouble yourself,' expostulated the surgeon. "'I know my way very well indeed.' Robert insisted, and the two men left the room together. As they entered the octagon antechamber, the barrister paused and shut the door behind him. "'Will you see that the door is closed, Mr. Dawson?' he said, pointing to that which opened upon the staircase. "'I wish to have a few moments' private conversation with you.' "'With much pleasure,' replied the surgeon, complying with Robert's request. "'But if you are at all alarmed about your uncle, Mr. Audley, I can set your mind at rest. There is no occasion for the least uneasiness.' Had his illness been at all serious, I should have telegraphed immediately for the family physician. "'I am sure that you would have done your duty, sir,' answered Robert gravely. "'But I am not going to speak of my uncle. I wish to ask you two or three questions about another person.' 
Indeed? The person who once lived in your family as Miss Lucy Graham, the person who is now Lady Audley. Mr. Dawson looked up with an expression of surprise upon his quiet face. "'Pardon me, Mr. Audley,' he answered. "'You can scarcely expect me to answer any questions about your uncle's wife without Sir Michael's express permission. I can understand no motive which can prompt you to ask such questions—no worthy motive, at least.' He looked severely at the young man, as much as to say, "'You have been falling in love with your uncle's pretty wife, sir, and you want to make me a go-between in some treacherous flirtation. But it won't do, sir. It won't do.' "'I always respected the lady as Miss Graham, sir,' he said, "'and I esteem her doubly as Lady Audley, not on account of her altered position, but because she is the wife of one of the noblest men in Christendom.' "'You cannot respect my uncle, nor my uncle's honour, more sincerely than I do,' answered Robert. "'I have no unworthy motive for the questions I am about to ask, and you must answer them.' "'Must!' echoed Mr. Dawson indignantly. "'Yes, you are my uncle's friend.' It was at your house he met the woman who is now his wife. She called herself an orphan, I believe, and enlisted his pity as well as his admiration in her behalf. She told him that she stood alone in the world, did she not, without a friend or relative? This was all I could ever learn of her antecedents. "'What reason have you to wish to know more?' asked the surgeon. "'A very terrible reason,' answered Robert Audley. For some months past I have struggled with doubts and suspicions which have embittered my life. They have grown stronger every day, and they will not be set at rest by the commonplace sophistries and the shallow arguments with which men try to deceive themselves rather than believe that which of all things upon earth they most fear to believe. I do not think that the woman who bears my uncle's name is worthy to be his wife. I may wrong her. Heaven grant that it is so. But if I do, the fatal chain of circumstantial evidence never yet linked itself so closely about an innocent person. I wish to set my doubts at rest, or—or or to confirm my fears. There is but one manner in which I can do this. I must trace the life of my uncle's wife backward, minutely and carefully, from this night to a period of six years ago. This is the twenty-fourth of February, fifty-nine. I want to know every record of her life between to-night and the February of the year fifty-three. And your motive is a worthy one. Yes. I wish to clear her from a very dreadful suspicion. Which exists only in your mind. And in the mind of one other person. May I ask who that person is? No, Mr. Dawson, answered Robert decisively. I cannot reveal anything more than what I have already told you. I am a very irresolute, vacillating man in most things. In this matter I am compelled to be decided. I repeat once more that I must know the history of Lucy Graham's life. If you refuse to help me to the small extent in your power, I will find others who will help me. Painful as it would become, I will ask my uncle for the information which you would withhold, rather than be baffled in the first step of my investigation." Mr. Dawson was silent for some minutes. "'I cannot express how much you have astonished and alarmed me, Mr. Audley,' he said. "'I can tell you so little about Lady Audley's antecedents, that it would be mere obstinacy to withhold the small amount of information I possess. I have always considered your uncle's wife one of the most amiable of women. I cannot bring myself to think her otherwise. It would be an uprooting of one of the strongest convictions of my life were I compelled to think her otherwise.' 
You wish to follow her life backward from the present hour to the year fifty-three? I do. She was married to your uncle last June twelvemonth in the midsummer of fifty-seven. She had lived in my house a little more than thirteen months. She became a member of my household upon the fourteenth of May in the year fifty-six. And she came to you— From a school in Brompton, a school kept by a lady of the name of Vincent. It was Mrs. Vincent's strong recommendation that induced me to receive Miss Graham into my family, without any more special knowledge of her antecedents. Did you see this Mrs. Vincent? I did not. I advertised for a governess, and Miss Graham answered my advertisement. In her letter she referred me to Mrs. Vincent, the proprietress of a school in which she was then residing as junior teacher. My time is always so fully occupied, that I was glad to escape the necessity of a day's loss in going from Audley to London to inquire about the young lady's qualifications. I looked for Mrs. Vincent's name in the directory, found it, and concluded that she was a responsible person, and wrote to her. Her reply was perfectly satisfactory. Miss Lucy Graham was assiduous and conscientious, as well as fully qualified for the situation I offered. I accepted this reference, and I had no cause to regret what may have been an indiscretion. And now, Mr. Audley, I have told you all that I have the power to tell. "'Will you be so kind as to give me the address of this Mrs. Vincent?' asked Robert, taking out his pocket-book. "'Certainly. She was then living at number 9, Crescent Villas, Brompton.' "'Ah, to be sure,' muttered Mr. Audley, a recollection of last September flashing suddenly back upon him as the surgeon spoke. "'Crescent Villas, yes, I have heard the address before from Lady Audley herself. This Mrs. Vincent telegraphed to my uncle's wife early in last September. She was ill—dying, I believe—and sent for my lady, but had removed from her old house and was not to be found.' "'Indeed? I never heard Lady Audley mention the circumstance.' "'Perhaps not. It occurred while I was down here.' "'Thank you, Mr. Dawson, for the information you have so kindly and honestly given me.' It takes me back two and a half years in the history of my lady's life, but I still have a blank of three years to fill up before I can exonerate her from my terrible suspicion. Good evening." Robert shook hands with the surgeon and returned to his uncle's room. He had been away about a quarter of an hour. Sir Michael had fallen asleep once more, and my lady's loving hands had lowered the heavy curtains and shaded the lamp by the bedside. Alicia and her father's wife were taking tea in Lady Audley's boudoir. The room next to the antechamber in which Robert and Mr. Dawson had been seated. Lucy Audley looked up from her occupation among the fragile china cups, and watched Robert rather anxiously, as he walked softly to his uncle's room and back again to the boudoir. She looked very pretty and innocent, seated behind the graceful group of delicate opal china and glittering silver. Surely a pretty woman never looks prettier than when making tea. The most feminine and most domestic of all occupations imparts a magic harmony to her every movement, a witchery to her every glance. The floating mists from the boiling liquid in which she infuses the soothing herbs, whose secrets are known to her alone, envelop her in a cloud of scented vapour, through which she seems a social fairy, weaving potent spells with gunpowder and bohea. At the tea-table she reigns omnipotent, unapproachable. What do men know of the mysterious beverage? Read how poor Hazlitt made his tea, and shudder at the dreadful barbarism. How clumsily the wretched creatures attempt to assist the witch president of the tea-tray! How hopelessly they hold the kettle! How continually they imperil the frail cups and saucers, or the taper hands of the priestess! To do away with the tea-table is to rob woman of her legitimate empire. 
to send a couple of hulking men about among your visitors, distributing a mixture made in the housekeeper's room, is to reduce the most social and friendly of ceremonies to a formal giving out of rations. Better the pretty influence of the teacups and saucers gracefully wielded in a woman's hand than all the inappropriate power snatched at the point of the pen from the unwilling sterner sex. Imagine all the women of England elevated to the high level of masculine intellectuality, superior to crinoline, above Pearl Powder and Mrs. Rachel Levinson, above taking the pains to be pretty, above tea-tables and that cruelly scandalous and rather satirical gossip which even strong men delight in, and what a drear, utilitarian, ugly life the sterner sex must lead. My lady was by no means strong-minded. The starry diamonds upon her white fingers flashed hither and thither among the tea-things, and she bent her pretty head over the marvellous Indian tea-caddy of sandalwood and silver, with as much earnestness as if life held no higher purpose than the infusion of Bohea. "'You'll take a cup of tea with us, Mr. Audley?' she asked, pausing with the teapot in her hand to look up at Robert, who was standing near the door. "'If you please.' "'But you have not dined, perhaps?' Shall I ring and tell them to bring you something a little more substantial than biscuits and transparent bread and butter? No, thank you, Lady Audley. I took some lunch before I left town. I'll trouble you for nothing but a cup of tea. He seated himself at the little table and looked across it at his cousin Alicia, who sat with a book in her lap, and had the air of being very much absorbed by its pages. The bright brunette complexion had lost its glowing crimson— and the animation of the young lady's manner was suppressed, on account of her father's illness, no doubt, Robert thought. "'Alicia, my dear,' the barrister said, after a very leisurely contemplation of his cousin, "'you're not looking well.' Miss Audley shrugged her shoulders, but did not condescend to lift her eyes from her book. "'Perhaps not,' she answered contemptuously. "'What does it matter? I'm growing a philosopher of your school, Robert Audley.' What does it matter? Who cares whether I am well or ill?" "'What a spitfire she is!' thought the barrister. He always knew his cousin was angry with him when she addressed him as Robert Audley. "'You needn't pitch into a fellow because he asks you a civil question, Alicia,' he said reproachfully. "'As to nobody caring about your health, that's nonsense. I care.' Miss Audley looked up with a bright smile. "'Sir Harry Towers cares.' Miss Audley returned to her book with a frown. "'What are you reading there, Alicia?' Robert asked after a pause, during which he had thoughtfully sat stirring his tea. "'Changes and Chances.' "'A novel?' "'Yes.' "'Who is it by?' "'The author of Follies and Faults,' answered Alicia, still pursuing her study of the romance upon her lap. "'Is it interesting?' Miss Audley pursed up her mouth and shrugged her shoulders. "'Not particularly,' she said. "'Then I think you might have better manners than to read it while your first cousin is sitting opposite you,' observed Mr. Audley, with some gravity, "'especially as he has only come to pay you a flying visit, and will be off to-morrow morning.' "'To-morrow morning!' exclaimed my lady, looking up suddenly. Though the look of joy upon Lady Audley's face was as brief as a flash of lightning on a summer sky— it was not unperceived by Robert. "'Yes,' he said. "'I shall be obliged to run up to London to-morrow on business. But I shall return the next day, if you will allow me, Lady Audley, and stay here till my uncle recovers.' "'But you are not seriously alarmed about him, are you?' asked my lady anxiously. 
"'You do not think him very ill?' "'No,' answered Robert. "'Thank heaven I think there is not the slightest cause for apprehension.' My lady sat silent for a few moments, looking at the empty teacups with a prettily thoughtful face, a face grave with the innocent seriousness of a musing child. "'But you were closeted such a long time with Mr. Dawson just now,' she said, after this brief pause. "'I was quite alarmed at the length of your conversation. Were you talking of Sir Michael all the time?' "'No, not all the time.' My lady looked down at the teacups once more. "'Why, what could you find to say to Mr. Dawson, or he to say to you?' she asked after another pause. "'You are almost strangers to each other.' "'Suppose Mr. Dawson wished to consult me about some law business?' "'Was that it?' cried Lady Audley eagerly. "'It would be rather unprofessional to tell you if it were so, my lady,' answered Robert gravely. My lady bit her lip and relapsed into silence. Alicia threw down her book and watched her cousin's preoccupied face. He talked to her now and then for a few minutes, but it was evidently an effort to him to arouse himself from this reverie. "'Upon my word, Robert Audley, you are a very agreeable companion!' exclaimed Alicia at length, her rather limited stock of patience quite exhausted by two or three of these abortive attempts at conversation." Perhaps the next time you come to the court you will be good enough to bring your mind with you. By your present inanimate appearance, I should imagine that you had left your intellect, such as it is, somewhere in the temple. You never were one of the liveliest of people, but latterly you have really grown almost unendurable. I suppose you are in love, Mr. Audley, and are thinking of the honoured object of your affections." He was thinking of Clara Tallboy's uplifted face, sublime in its unutterable grief of her impassioned words still ringing in his ears as clearly as when they were first spoken. Again he saw her looking at him with her bright brown eyes. Again he heard that solemn question, "'Shall you or I find my brother's murderer?' And he was in Essex, in the little village from which he firmly believed George Tallboys had never departed. He was on the spot at which all record of his friend's life ended as suddenly as a story ends when the reader shuts the book. And could he withdraw now from the investigation which he found himself involved? Could he stop now, for any consideration? No. A thousand times no. Not with the image of that grief-stricken face imprinted on his mind. Not with the accents of that earnest appeal ringing on his ear. End of chapter 25《Chapter Twenty Six of Lady Audley's Secret》This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Twenty Six So Far and No Farther. Robert left Audley the next morning by an early train, and reached Shoreditch a little after nine o'clock. He did not return to his chambers, but called a cab and drove straight to Crescent Villas, West Brompton. He knew that he should fail in finding the lady he went to seek at this address, as his uncle had failed a few months before, but he thought it possible to obtain some clue to the schoolmistress's new residence, in spite of Sir Michael's ill success. Mrs. Vincent was in a dying state, according to the telegraphic message. Robert thought. If I do find her, I shall at least succeed in discovering whether that message was genuine. 
He found Crescent Villas after some difficulty. The houses were large, but they lay half-embedded among the chaos of brick and rising mortar around them. New terraces, new streets, new squares led away into hopeless masses of stone and plaster on every side. The roads were sticky with damp clay, which clogged the wheels of the cab, and buried the fetlocks of the horse. The desolations, that awful aspect of incompleteness and discomfort which pervades a new and unfinished neighborhood, had set its dismal seal upon the surrounding streets, which had arisen about and entrenched Crescent Villas, and Robert wasted forty minutes by his watch, and an hour and a quarter by the cabman's reckoning, in driving up and down uninhabited streets and terraces, trying to find the villas, whose chimney-tops were frowning down upon him black and venerable, amid groves of virgin plaster, undimmed by time or smoke. But having at last succeeded in reaching his destination, Mr. Audley alighted from the cab, directed the driver to wait for him at a certain corner, and set out upon his voyage of discovery. "'If I were a distinguished Q.C., I could not do this sort of thing,' he thought. "'My time would be worth a guinea or so a minute, and I should be retained in the great case of Hogs versus Boggs, going forward this very day before a special jury at Westminster Hall. As it is, I can afford to be patient.' He inquired for Mrs. Vincent at the number which Mr. Dawson had given him. The maid who opened the door had never heard that lady's name, but after going to inquire of her mistress, she returned to tell Robert that Mrs. Vincent had lived there, but that she had left two months before the present occupants had entered the house. "'And Mrs. has been here fifteen months,' the girl added emphatically. "'But you cannot tell where she went on leaving here?' Robert asked despondingly. "'No, sir.' Mrs. says she believes the lady failed, and that she left sudden-like, and didn't want her address to be known in the neighborhood. Mr. Audley felt himself at a standstill once more. If Mrs. Vincent had left the place in debt, she had no doubt scrupulously concealed her whereabouts. There was little hope, then, of learning her address from the tradespeople. And yet, on the other hand, it was just possible that some of her sharpest creditors might have made it their business to discover the defaulter's retreat. He looked about him for the nearest shops, and found a baker's, a stationer's, and a fruiterer's a few paces from the crescent. Three empty-looking, pretentious shops, with plate-glass windows, and a hopeless air of gentility. He stopped at the baker's, who called himself a pastry-cook and confectioner, and exhibited some specimens of petrified sponge-cake in glass bottles, and some highly-glazed tarts covered with green gauze. "'She must have bought bread,' Robert thought, as he deliberated before the baker's shop and she is likely to have bought it at the handiest place. I'll try the baker." The baker was standing behind his counter, disputing the items of a bill with a shabby, genteel young woman. He did not trouble himself to attend to Robert Audley until he had settled the dispute, but he looked up as he was receding the bill, and asked the barrister what he pleased to want. "'Can you tell me the address of a Mrs. Vincent, who lived at Number 9 Crescent Villas a year and a half ago?' Mr. Audley inquired mildly. "'No, I can't.' answered the baker, growing very red in the face, and speaking in an unnecessarily loud voice. "'And what's more, I wish I could. That lady owes me upward of eleven pound for bread, and it's rather more than I can afford to lose. If anybody can tell me where she lives, I shall be much obliged to him for doing so.' Robert Audley shrugged his shoulders and wished the man good morning. He felt that his discovery of the lady's whereabouts would involve more troubles than he had expected. He might have looked for Mrs. Vincent's name in the post-office directory, but he thought it scarcely likely that a lady who was on such uncomfortable terms with her creditors would afford them so easy a means of ascertaining her residence. 
"'If a baker can't find her, how should I find her?' he thought despairingly. If a resolute, sanguine, active, and energetic creature such as the baker failed to achieve this business, how can a lymphatic wretch like me hope to accomplish it? Where the baker has been defeated, what preposterous folly it would be for me to try to succeed. Mr. Audley abandoned himself to these gloomy reflections as he walked slowly back toward the corner at which he had left the cab. About halfway between the baker's shop and this corner, he was arrested by hearing a woman's step close at his side, and a woman's voice asking him to stop. He turned and found himself face to face with the shabbily dressed woman whom he had left settling her account with the baker. "'Er, uh, what?' he asked vaguely. Uh, "'Can I do anything for you, ma'am? Uh, does Mrs. Vincent owe you money, too?' "'Yes, sir,' the woman answered, with a semi-genteel manner which corresponded with the shabby gentility of her dress. "'Mrs. Vincent is in my debt, but it isn't that, sir. I—I want to know, please, what your business may be with her, because—' "'Because—' can give me her address if you choose, ma'am. That's what you mean to say, isn't it?' The woman hesitated a little, looking rather suspiciously at Robert. "'You're not connected with—with the tally business, are you, sir?' she asked, after considering Mr. Audley's personal appearance for a few moments. "'The what, ma'am?' asked the young barrister, staring aghast at his questioner. Oh, "'I'm sure I beg your pardon, sir.' exclaimed the little woman, seeing that she had made some awful mistake. "'I thought you might have been, you know. Some of the gentlemen who collect for the tally-shops do dress so very handsome, and I know Mrs. Vincent owes a good deal of money.' Robert Audley laid his hand upon the speaker's arm. "'My dear madam,' he said, "'I want to know nothing of Mrs. Vincent's affairs. So far from being concerned in what you call the tally business, I have not the remotest idea what you mean by that expression. You may mean a political conspiracy—' You may mean some new species of taxes. Mrs. Vincent does not owe me any money, however badly she may stand with that awful-looking baker. I never saw her in my life, but I wish to see her to-day for the simple purpose of asking her a few very plain questions about a young lady who once resided in her house. If you know where Mrs. Vincent lives and will give me her address, you will be doing me a great favor. He took out his card-case and handed a card to the woman, who examined the slip of pasteboard anxiously before she spoke again. "'I'm sure you look and speak like a gentleman, sir,' she said, after a brief pause. "'And I hope you will excuse me if I've seemed mistrustful-like. But poor Mrs. Vincent has had dreadful difficulties, and I'm the only person hereabouts that she's trusted with her addresses. I'm a dressmaker, sir, and I've worked for her for upward of six years. And though she doesn't pay me regular, you know, sir, she gives me a little money on account now and then, and I get on as well as I can. I may tell you where she lives, then, sir. You haven't deceived me, have you? On my honour, no. Well, then, sir, said the dressmaker, dropping her voice as if she thought the pavement beneath her feet, or the iron railings before the houses by her side, might have ears to hear her. It's Acacia Cottage, Peckham Grove. I took a dress there yesterday for Mrs. Vincent. Thank you said Robert, writing the address in his pocket-book. "'I am very much obliged to you, and you may rely upon it. Mrs. Vincent shall not suffer any inconvenience through me.' He lifted his hat, bowed to the little dressmaker, and turned back to the cab. "'I have beaten the baker, at any rate,' he thought. "'Now for the second stage, travelling backward in my lady's life.' The drive from Brompton to the Peckham Road was a very long one, and between Crescent Villas and Acacia Cottage— Robert Audley had ample leisure for reflection. 
He thought of his uncle lying weak and ill in the oak-room at Audley Court. He thought of the beautiful blue eyes watching Sir Michael's slumbers, the soft white hands tending on his waking moments, the low musical voice soothing his loneliness, cheering and consoling his declining years. What a pleasant picture it might have been! Had he been able to look upon it ignorantly, seeing no more than others saw, looking no further than a stranger could look. But with the black cloud which he saw brooding over it, what an arch-mockery, what a diabolical delusion it seemed! Peckham Grove, pleasant enough in the summer-time, has rather a dismal aspect upon a dull February day, when the trees are bare and leafless, and the little gardens desolate. Acacia Cottage bore small token of the fitness of its nomenclature, and faced the road with its stuccoed walls sheltered only by a couple of attenuated poplars. But it announced that it was Acacia Cottage by means of a small brass plate upon one of the gate-posts, which was sufficient indication for the sharp-sighted cabman, who dropped Mr. Audley upon the pavement before the little gate. Acacia Cottage was much lower in the social scale than Crescent Villas, and the small maid-servant who came to the low wooden gate and parlayed with Mr. Audley, was evidently well used to the encounter of relentless creditors across the same feeble barricade. She murmured the familiar domestic fiction of the uncertainty regarding her mistress's whereabouts, and told Robert that if he would please to state his name and business, she would go and see if Mrs. Vincent was at home. Mr. Audley produced a card, and wrote in pencil under his own name, a connection of the late Miss Graham. He directed the small servant to carry his card to her mistress, and quietly awaited the result. The servant returned in about five minutes with the key of the gate. Her mistress was at home, she told Robert as she admitted him, and would be happy to see the gentleman. The square parlour into which Robert was ushered bore in every scrap of ornament, in every article of furniture, the unmistakable stamp of that species of poverty which is most comfortless because it is never stationary. The mechanic who furnishes his tiny sitting-room with a half a dozen cane-chairs, a Pembroke table, a Dutch clock, a tiny looking-glass, a crockery shepherd and shepherdess, and a set of gaudily japanned iron tea-trays, makes the most of his limited possessions, and generally contrives to get some degree of comfort out of them. But the lady who loses the handsome furniture of the house she is compelled to abandon, and encamps in some smaller habitation with the shabby remainder, brought in by some merciful friend at the sale of her effects, carries with her an aspect of genteel desolation and tawdry misery, not easily to be paralleled in wretchedness by any other phase which poverty can assume. The room which Robert Audley surveyed was furnished with the shabbier scraps, snatched from the ruin which had overtaken the imprudent schoolmistress in Crescent Villas. A cottage piano, a chiffonier, six sizes too large for the room, and dismally gorgeous in gilded mouldings that were chipped and broken. A slim-legged card-table, placed in the post of honour, formed the principal pieces of furniture. A threadbare patch of Brussels carpet covered the centre of the room, and formed an oasis of roses and lilies upon a desert of shabby green drugget. Knitted curtains shaded the windows, in which hung wire baskets of horrible-looking plants of the cactus species, that grew downward, like some demented class of vegetation, whose prickly and spider-like members had a fancy for standing on their heads. The green baize-covered card-table was adorned with gaudily bound annuals or books of beauty, placed at right angles. But Robert Audley did not avail himself of these literary distractions. He seated himself upon one of the rickety chairs, and waited patiently for the advent of the schoolmistress. He could hear the hum of half a dozen voices in a room near him, and the jingling harmonies of a set of variations in De Conte upon a piano, 
whose every wire was evidently in the last stages of attenuation. He had waited for about a quarter of an hour, when the door was opened, and a lady, very much dressed, and with a setting sunlight of faded beauty upon her face, entered the room. "'Mr. Audley, I presume,' she said, motioning to Robert to reseat himself, and placing herself in an easy-chair opposite to him. "'You will pardon me, I hope, for detaining you so long. My duties—' "'It is I who should apologize for intruding upon you,' Robert answered politely. "'But my motive for calling upon you is a very serious one, and must plead my excuse. You remember the lady whose name I wrote upon my card?' "'Perfectly.' "'May I ask how much you know of that lady's history since her departure from your house?' "'Very little. In point of fact, scarcely anything at all. Miss Graham, I believe, obtained a situation in the family of a surgeon resident in Essex. Indeed, it was I who recommended her to that gentleman. I have never heard from her since she left me.' "'But you have communicated with her?' Robert asked eagerly. "'No, indeed.' Mr. Audley was silent for a few moments, the shadow of gloomy thoughts gathering darkly on his face. "'May I ask if you sent a telegraphic dispatch to Miss Graham early in last September, stating that you were dangerously ill, and that you wished to see her?' Mrs. Vincent smiled at her visitor's question. "'I had no occasion to send such a message,' she said. "'I have never been seriously ill in my life.' Robert Audley paused before he asked any further questions and scrawled a few pencilled words in his notebook. "'If I ask you a few straightforward questions about Miss Lucy Graham, madam,' he said, "'will you do me the favour to answer them without asking my motive in making such inquiries?' "'Most certainly,' replied Mrs. Vincent. "'I know nothing to Miss Graham's disadvantage, and have no justification for making a mystery of the little I do know.' "'Then will you tell me at what date the young lady first came to you?' Mrs. Vincent smiled and shook her head. She had a pretty smile, the frank smile of a woman who had been admired, and who has too long felt the certainty of being able to please, to be utterly subjugated by any worldly misfortune. "'It's not the least use to ask me, Mr. Audley,' she said. "'I'm the most careless creature in the world. I never did and never could remember dates, though I do all in my power to impress upon my girls how important it is for their future welfare that they should know when William the Conqueror began to reign, and all that kind of thing. But I haven't the remotest idea when Miss Graham came to me, although I know it was ages ago, for it was the very summer I had my peach-coloured silk. But we must consult Tonks. Tonks is sure to be right." Robert Audley wondered who or what Tonks could be—a diary, perhaps, or a memorandum-book some obscure rival of Letsom. Mrs. Vincent rung the bell, which was answered by the maid-servant who had admitted Robert. "'Ask Miss Tonks to come to me,' she said. "'I want to see her particularly.' In less than five minutes Miss Tonks made her appearance. She was wintry and rather frost-bitten in aspect, and seemed to bring cold air in the scanty folds of her sombre merino dress. She was no age in particular, and looked as if she had never been younger, and would never grow older, but would remain forever working backward and forward in her narrow groove, like some self-feeding machine for the instruction of young ladies. "'Tonks, my dear,' said Mrs. Vincent, without ceremony, "'this gentleman is a relative of Miss Graham's. Do you remember how long it is since she came to us at Crescent Villas?' "'She came in August, 1854,' answered Miss Tonks. "'I think it was the 18th of August. 
"'But I am not quite sure that it wasn't the seventeenth. "'I know it was on a Tuesday.' "'Thank you, Tonks. You are a most invaluable darling,' exclaimed Mrs. Vincent, with her sweetest smile. It was perhaps because of the invaluable nature of Miss Tonks's services that she had received no remuneration whatever from her employer for the last three or four years. Mrs. Vincent might have hesitated to pay from very contempt for the pitiful nature of the stipend, as compared with the merits of the teacher. "'Is there anything else that Tonks or I can tell you, Mr. Audley?' asked the schoolmistress. "'Tonks has a far better memory than I have.' "'Can you tell me where Miss Graham came from when she entered your household?' Robert inquired. "'Not very precisely,' answered Mrs. Vincent. "'I have a vague notion that Miss Graham said something about coming from the seaside. But she didn't say where, or if she did, I have forgotten it. Tonks, did Miss Graham tell you where she came from?' "'Oh, no,' replied Miss Tonks, shaking her grim little head significantly. "'Miss Graham told me nothing. She was too clever for that.' She knows how to keep her own secrets, in spite of her innocent ways and her curly hair," Miss Tonks added spitefully. "'You think she had secrets?' Robert asked rather eagerly. "'I know she had,' replied Miss Tonks, with frosty decision. "'All manner of secrets.' "'I wouldn't have engaged such a person as junior teacher in a respectable school without so much as one word of recommendation from any living creature.' "'You had no reference, then, from Miss Graham?' asked Robert, addressing Mrs. Vincent. "'No,' the lady answered, with some little embarrassment. "'I waived that. Miss Graham waived the question of salary. I could not do less than waive the question of reference. She quarrelled with her papa, she told me, and she wanted to find a home away from all the people she had ever known. She wished to keep herself quite separate from these people.' She had endured so much, she said, young as she was, and she wanted to escape from her troubles. How could I press her for a reference under these circumstances, especially when I saw that she was a perfect lady? You know that Lucy Graham was a perfect lady, Tonks, and it is very unkind for you to say such cruel things about my taking her without a reference. When people make favourites, they are apt to be deceived in them, Miss Tonks answered with icy sententiousness and with no very perceptible relevance to the point in discussion. "'I never made her a favourite, you jealous Tonks,' Mrs. Vincent answered reproachfully. "'I never said she was as useful as you, dear. You know I never did.' "'Oh, no,' replied Miss Tonks, with a chilling accent. "'You never said she was useful. She was only ornamental, a person to be shown off to visitors, and to play fantasias on the drawing-room piano.' "'Then you can give me no clue to Miss Graham's previous history?' Robert asked, looking from the schoolmistress to her teacher. He saw very clearly that Miss Tonks bore an envious grudge against Lucy Graham, a grudge which even the lapse of time had not healed. "'If this woman knows anything to my lady's detriment, she will tell it,' he thought. "'She will tell it only too willingly.' But Miss Tonks appeared to know nothing whatever— except that Miss Graham had sometimes declared herself an ill-used creature, deceived by the baseness of mankind, and the victim of unmerited sufferings, in the way of poverty and deprivation. Beyond this, Miss Tonks could tell nothing, and although she made the most of what she did know, Robert soon sounded the depth of her small stock of information. "'I have only one more question to ask,' he said at last. "'It is this. 
Did Miss Graham leave any books, or knick-knacks, or any other kind of property whatever behind her, when she left your establishment? Not to my knowledge, Mrs. Vincent replied. Yes, cried Miss Tonks, sharply. She did leave something. She left a box. It's upstairs in my room. I've got an old bonnet in it. Would you like to see the box? she asked, addressing Robert. If you will be so good as to allow me, he answered, I should very much like to see it. I'll fetch it down, said Miss Tonks. It's not very big. She ran out of the room before Mr. Audley had time to utter any polite remonstrance. How pitiless these women are to each other, he thought, while the teacher was absent. This one knows intuitively that there is some danger to the other lurking beneath my questions. She sniffs the coming trouble to her fellow female creature, and rejoices in it, and would take any pains to help me. What a world it is! and how these women take life out of her hands. Helen Malden, Lady Audley, Clara Tallboys, and now Miss Tonks, all womankind from beginning to end. Miss Tonks re-entered while the young barrister was meditating upon the infamy of her sex. She carried a dilapidated paper-covered bonnet-box, which she submitted to Robert's inspection. Mr. Audley knelt down to examine the scraps of railway labels and addresses which were pasted here and there upon the box. It had been battered upon a great many different lines of railway, and had evidently travelled considerably. Many of the labels had been torn off, but fragments of some of them remained, and upon one yellow scrap of paper Robert read the letters, T-U-R-I. "'This box has been to Italy,' he thought. "'Those are the first four letters of the word Turin, and the label is a foreign one.' The only direction which had not been either defaced or torn away was the last— which bore the name of Miss Graham, passenger to London. Looking very closely at this label, Mr. Audley discovered that it had been pasted over another. "'Will you be so good as to let me have a little water and a piece of sponge?' he said. "'I want to get off this upper label. Believe me that I am justified in what I am doing.' Miss Tonks ran out of the room and returned immediately with a basin of water and a sponge. "'Shall I take off the label?' she asked. "'No, thank you.' Robert answered coldly. I can do it very well myself. He damped the upper label several times before he could loosen the edges of the paper, but after two or three careful attempts, the moistened surface peeled off, without injury to the underneath address. Miss Tonks could not contrive to read this address across Robert's shoulder, though she exhibited considerable dexterity in her endeavours to accomplish that object. Mr. Audley repeated his operations upon the lower label, which he removed from the box, and placed very carefully between two blank leaves of his pocket-book. "'I need intrude upon you no longer, ladies,' he said when he had done this. "'I am extremely obliged to you for having afforded me all the information in your power. I wish you good morning.' Mrs. Vincent smiled and bowed, murmuring some complacent conventionality about the delight she had felt in Mr. Audley's visit. Miss Tonks, more observant, stared at the white change which had come over the young man's face since he had removed the upper label from the box. Robert walked slowly away from Acacia Cottage. "'If that which I have found to-day is no evidence for a jury,' he thought, "'it is surely enough to convince my uncle that he has married a designing and infamous woman.'" End of chapter 26「Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. 
Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.